Welcome to HivriaCast, the podcast where I, Alad Nehrai, speak with some fascinating and incredible creative Jews. Hello and welcome to HivriaCast. I am super excited. This is episode 23. And for the second week in a row, I have an awesome Hivria writer um, who also happens to do many other things. Uh, welcome, Yocheved Seidoff. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Yocheved, it's such a pleasure to have you here. Thank um, you. You know, one of the things, I always, like the first thing that always strikes me whenever I talk about you in regards to Hivria is how like I recruited you because of your Facebook statuses. That's true. That's <laughs> very true. And I just think that's like, that to me embodies your voice. Like that you, even when you were, are posting on Facebook, like, you know, when I post on Facebook, I'm not, I'm just like, let me get something out there or something. Mm-hmm. And you're so, so, um, it's a word like thoughtful and gracious and Thank you. whatever. I just, yeah. And uh, so it was both, surprising and not surprising that you rocked Hevria after that with like amazing posts. So thank you. I actually yeah. remember getting your email like, Oh, who me? <laughs> um, and feeling very sort of empowered and excited about my first posts and having the opportunity to actually yeah. take some of those musings and make them more wow. alive sort of. So thank you a lot. That yeah. was really a life changing moment. Oh, wow. For me too. <laughs> I think that's the beauty of community, right? Like that we change each other's lives. That's like the yeah, idea. that's a really good way of putting it. That's very true, especially if we allow it to happen. We're already off <laughs> on a roll. We could just like end <laughs> the episode right now. Um, <laughs> but uh, I should actually go back to introducing you a little bit because you are obviously do so much more than write for Evria. You run a school, um, yeah. Lamplighters Yeshiva in yeah. Crown Heights. How's that? going these days so why don't you tell people a little bit about it obviously not everyone knows what it is um sure so lamplighters yeshiva is it's more than a school um to me it's really a life force it's a life energy around bringing um wholeness and integration and sense of intention into jewish education and into really raising the next generation and um it really just started Initially, as like a passion project um, um, with my own child, you know, I think that many schools are founded by parents who are somehow frustrated or disillusioned with mm. their own kids' education. Um, I mean, it really is a classic founder story. And I think for me, it was less that I was frustrated with my son's current state of education because he was three and a half at the time, I think it was sort of this meshing of what I idealistically believe to be true about education, about it being this like holistic endeavor and sort of looking ahead and saying what is available to my child, mm. like that's in, that's currently on the market per <laughs> se, you know, like, um, in general education, not just in our community, but just like what is the state of education? And then also just thinking like I at that point I was in my late twenties, um, maybe even I was already thirty. And I had done a lot of work in the Jewish community around quote unquote at risk, I hate that term, but at risk and and experiential education and the arts and creativity and just had seen a lot of brokenness around me and that to really answer that brokenness, it wasn't just about like Mm. continuing to churn the pot in the same way we always have. So yeah. So like it was a collision of all that stuff that was like, Hey, I'm super naive and crazy. Let's start a school. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we started Lamplaters really with this intense vision and thank God. I mean, we're now in our eighth year We've grown to 150 students. And what's super awesome and incredibly humbling is that we've sort of risen on the, you know, Jewish education sort of sector, like in a transdenominational way. Like it's about the Orthodox Hasidic community, but in many ways it's also not. And also risen on the innovation sector as far as what we're doing in like radical transparency and just personalization and you know this bottom-up sort of movement around education so 
it's really cool. <laughs> it's really cool. And it's, and it's really um, consuming. You know, it's not a job mm. at all. Wow. Um, I mean, I think when you started it, it was very revolutionary for Crown Heights, no? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there were very few sort of parent-founded schools in the neighborhood. Um, like a lot of, at that time, very institutional. Yeah, most of the schools were your sort of, you know, your established schools or even the newer schools were already very established. And I think like in certain ways when we first started, you know, we were all either children of Bali Chuva or Bali Chuva. Mm. Um, and I, I actually wrote an article about this, like the phenomena of like the, the Balachuva from birth in a sense of sort of being inside and outside at the same time. Right. And I think that was really the, the driving force at the beginning. So, yeah, we were revolutionary. We also were under the radar. <laughs> and people thought we were all kinds of things like the hippie dippies or the modern or special need. I mean, whatever label people needed to sort of construct to help them understand what we were doing yeah um but yeah we were quite quite unique so why did what did you feel was missing what do you think you're providing um like what why did you think like that what was missing for your son when you created it you know i just i guess i looked at my kid and i was like there's this whole person of like life and energy and creative passion and genius and like who will really ever see him? Mm. I want him to be seen. I want him to be really, really valued. And I hate, you know, at the beginning, so much of the, the language around lamplaters, because we were really just coming from a place of vision. Now, when I use those words, like almost feel trite to me. Like, mm. what does it actually mean for like a child's genius to be respected or cultivated? I think that's kind of what we were, th I was hoping for at the time. Now it's developed to mm. so much more. Just like what, what kind of community can we create in which like the richness of individuality is like really understood and appreciated? You know, how does, how does that happen with nuance and texture and this belief that we're not all the same? And, mm. and I think that, you know, things shift around, like, the why shifts, you know, like, is it's still about my son. Um, it's also still about many, many children and, and the community and a far-reaching sort of impact. But I sort of, I, I have been trying to dabble lately in, like, meditation, and I did this visualization with someone that I'm learning with, and <clears throat> it's sort of, like, encountered the little child inside <laughs> and really realized that a lot of the work is also centered in like what did I as a little girl need you mm. know wow. I as a little girl needed I as a little girl felt this incredible tension and paradox around being an individual and being part of a community and sort of the push-pull around that and the duality around that I as a little girl needed wanted to be understood and valued even though I was kind of different <laughs> um and I as a little girl needed to understand wanted to understand like my my own deep spiritual sort of identity like I really really vibed with like Hasidic teachings and even though that wasn't necessarily what my family's reality was like. So I had no real prism to get that, you know, that your own soul has its own identity. And mm. so not that this work is self-serving per se, but it definitely was an interesting frame just to think about how much of our work in general in this world is really a reflection of like answering our own needs on some level, you know? I mean, so, I think that's, I think so many people don't get there. So I think that's like such a special realization to have. And it's so interesting because I feel like so much of what you bring up always, like, it's just reminding me of, like, themes in creativity. Like, for example, like, how you, you saw a problem or problems or a lack or whatever, and instead of, quote, unquote, complaining or something, it's 
people derisively. We just it's actually right. interesting that we're talking about <laughs> right, complaining, <exactly. laughs> but instead of only complaining, right, like right. not that again, there's nothing wrong with expressing, but I think instead of only doing that, you had literally built, literally built uh, something from it, and I think that's so like the essence of creativity in a sense is like this. Um, there's a need within, and and then an ex- a a a building, whether it's a literal building or like a piece of writing that exists on the internet doesn't even have like a physical reality. Right. Um, either way, it's some sort of building. Um, and I feel like, you know, that's kind of like one of Hivria's founding principles. And I think it's so cool to like see that in your, in what you do. And and I think that's what I admire about you so much. And then the other thing, like, I think that's also so much the essence of creativity is this understanding that like, whatever I'm putting out there, there's like ultimately it's it's from within like mm. you know what i'm saying like yeah. i have, even when i'm talking about everybody else it's really about me <laughs> yeah. and it sounds super selfish but actually the truth is that's that's what it means to be human you know yeah and also what what other point of reference is right. that i mean yeah like as jews we we want to sort of inculcate this like reality that our point of reference is not necessarily ourselves but it's like god's view or the torah's view or whatever but if we can imagine that, like a little Torah scroll inside, right? And mm. like that little Torah scroll inside is like co-written by us and God, and <laughs> and the the black letters on the white on the white cloth is like our story, right. and it's unfolding through a prism of like divine providence or whatever. And like, if we're not going to echo those stories and share them somehow, then like, how else are we going to like? create a unified Torah or like, or a unified consciousness. And so interesting, because that's like essentially what you also described was important with the school, like this idea of individuality. Yeah. I know, that's so interesting like that. And it's so interesting. Like it also reminds me of that line, I think in Sinagamara, where, you know, we should remember on the one hand that um, God created the entire world for us. And the other hand that, um, what was it that we we're like, with like dust or something. Yeah, we're dust like, in totally, the, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. That's a. It's funny that I only remember the one. <laughs> yeah, you just <laughs> like, you, the world was created for you. <laughs> that's the one I remember. It's like the, one. the other one, I'm just like, ah, whatever. Yeah, but no, whatever. I think that's the. Yeah, no, but that's that's really. To yeah. me, that's that's uh, the tension between like creativity and logic. Like, yeah. If you look at the world logically, like we're just dust, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Totally. But also, like, you have to feel that paradox and that power to actually, like, think you can make a difference. Like, right. if if we couldn't sort of trip out on this idea that we have some sort of sense of personal and communal empowerment, then, like, really, how would we feel alive in this world? Like, yeah. I... And I and I and I totally credit that to the way I was raised and being raised in a Hasidic environment and and with mm. the teachings of the Rebbe and also having very strong Persian <laughs> parents, <laughs> like basically either overtly or covertly trying to make you feel like everything is up to you. It's either, it's either all your fault. For better or, or for worse. Like, yeah, yeah. For, I, mean, I, I love you, mommy and daddy. Um, <laughs> but I actually know my mother like always shares my chevria posts, even if like the ones that are like a little bit like not so. Right. Um, yeah, but, I got that going on too. Yeah. Uh, Israeli, Sephardi, Exactly. Cetera, so. so like when you say, it's like that Sephardic, guilt blame pride with that like Hasidic <laughs> guilt break, um, blame pride Wow! and you sort of mesh that together and you're taught from a very young age that no you really can't change the world no but wait you really can't change it and it creates this like reality of like no wait I really can't change the world mm-hmm. and sometimes that's a heavy burden to bear for sure but it's like kind of what you're saying the world was created for me I'm dust like if we don't if we can't float within those headspaces of actually believing like no i have it i can do this Mm. then how do we actually make an impact so some i think that this sort of like go big or grow go broke kind of philosophy vision is like very ingrained in me in that space and create like collective in the go big or go broke yeah that's interesting. I guess that is kind of connected to the feeling of like the world's on your shoulders in a sense. Cause yeah. If you're responsible for the world and you got to go big. 
Right, exactly. But then they teach. But then you're taught that like every action matters. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're, you're you're covered no matter what angle you're coming from. Essentially, um, right, both positively and negatively. Exa- exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, that's so. You know, it's interesting because I think that's uh, one of the things millennials are very uh, criticized for is this idea that like they're very much in this world of like the world was created for me. Mm. Um, but I think it's like. I tend to think of it as like a, a tikkun or something like we're, mm. we're entering a phase where, where subjectivity and creativity and these sorts of ways of thinking are becoming more prominent. Mm. And so maybe some people overcorrect or maybe, you know, um, but I think that in, it's just, uh, we see that in the past. It was like this, we're getting to this point of like individuality yeah. becoming a channel for that objectivity, you know? Um, yeah. And also like there's a difference between individuality that's really focused on the self and, and, and cultivating the self for the sake of a bigger purpose or the broader whole. Or right. I think that's like the difference between artists or, or kind of creativity that feels that it doesn't really have life to it. Right. With a sort of, you know, like a self-absorption around it. And what I really so deeply appreciated being part of the Hevria community is that it's really about in building community and the other. And mm. so it's not like artistry for the sake of just self, you know, mm-hmm. there's something very. Yeah. I think that's why, ironically, I think that's why we have a lot of controversial art, a lot, I don't know, we more than maybe others or whatever. We have a good amount of controversial articles and you are Baruch Hashem, the source of them very often. But I think the point being that because we're coming from a perspective of like, this isn't just about me. I'm not just trying to to just like, yes, there are times where I like, you know, like right now I'm working on this crazy story of like the clay man with the spikes and no one's reading it. And like, <laughs> I was joking with Matthew that I had, I had a record for the least amount of shares because I, I got four shares on the last one. <laughs> I was really proud of that. Um, I feel like as the leader of Hebrew, that's really important. Um, yeah, definitely. Take th- that I lead the lowest amount. Totally. And <laughs> anyway, point being like, yeah, sometimes we go into these, like, I don't know if it's self-indulgent or whatever it is, but like, um, but I think very often we have like artistry that combines with social commentary. Mm. And I think that is sometimes mistaken for complaining or whatever. But I think the idea being like, well, my art is not just for me. Like I'm trying to right. do this for other people. Right. You know, well, Especially when you get feedback, that's very like, I think what's, what's interesting you know, there's what's visible to the broader community as far as how people engage with our work or, you know, with our articles. And then there's all the feedback and commentary and conversations that happen privately, like sort of behind. Oh, yeah. And to me, that's the most gratifying. Right. Um, right. Because especially in response to those quote unquote controversial articles or what I just find, I just kind of frame them as like being very visible. Um the kind of responses to that are the most heartwarming to me and the most affirming because I, I feel like we're waiting for the sense of validation or understanding or to be seen, I guess, coming back to that idea of what it means to be seen. Hmm. And so when we as artists or writers, um, social entrepreneurs <laughs> can sort of lift that veil again with the aim to like shed light and like, make the world a better place and all that there's almost this like sigh of relief this like almost mm-hmm. audible exhale right yeah. that happens for others where it's like mm-hmm. oh you too or oh thank you for giving voice or oh and like you know the articles that were i'm not gonna say the hardest for me to write because but the mo- that i was most drawn to write um where i got you know fairly personal or the ones that I got, especially received these kinds of reactions around. And like one that strikes me was the article that I wrote about, um, you know, wanting a, wanting a baby while on birth control. Mm-hmm. And that's like giving voice to something that people typically don't talk about. Um, that sort of tension between making a choice 
on one one side of your life that but still having you know feelings around wanting to grow your family or or have more children or just like what it means to be a woman and and have to deal with so many contradictory realities in certain yeah. ways and the kinds of responses I got to that were just like I can't they were ama- amazing incredible just this like deep feeling of sisterhood and like oh it's not it's not shameful yeah and and that that's very that's very powerful like I feel like that's a, a very high level of creativity in a sense where there is an expression of self and there's a certain visibility, but it really ultimately leads to deep connection and deep purpose. And, and just this like, Hey, I see you. You see me, mm. you know? It's so interesting. I feel like you're touching on something that's so, um, it's so essential to creativity or at least to the experience of the receiver in which I think also is why I personally see like creativity and art as, um, very at least it has the potential to be extremely communal Mm. because like i think one of the i also know like for me as a writer one of the best experiences i have as a writer is when someone's like i don't feel alone anymore you know when you hear that that's like oh my gosh i can't believe that i had that effect like and it's like you gave someone a gift you know um and and then then all that makes worth like i could get a million negative comments on a piece if one person told me that it'd be like worth it you know um, but I think there's also this this idea that, you know, when you have a person who feels heard and feels understood, or at least is like, wow, I can't believe someone else experiences it. Like, it gets expressed in many different ways, but I think um, ultimately it's, it's such a good way of putting it, like feeling seen, um, is you create this connection. Like, and it has the potential to be, to be fostered, I think, you know, yeah. like where someone, you know, we have... I mean, that's really like how you came to Hivria, right? Like, and how other, like our writers now all come through, like anyone that we add as a regular writer comes through um, becoming first a, like a quote unquote fan and then like, but also feeling like they want to do the same thing and that sort of thing. And and then these people now come to like the creative fabrings that we do right. and like all these things. And, and this whole idea like, wow, you can, you know, I remember one time we were sitting down at a creative fabring and, for anyone who doesn't know, we do these. I do these things at my house, uh, like a com- combination of open mic and a fabring. And, and I remember once someone pointed out that they knew me only through the internet or whatever. And I was like, "Wow, that's so crazy that we this internet like brought us together and whatever." And then Saul turns to me, he goes, "Like, don't you know us all through the internet originally?" <laughs> and I was like, "Yes." And I thought that was so cool because yeah. I was like. This is a community specifically, not just about the internet, but it was like created through creativity, literally, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and yeah, that power of being seen has such a power over people. Yeah, yeah, it totally does. Especially, and this is something that I've sort of been thinking about lately, um, especially when it's linked to like a common purpose or like this like evolutionary purpose that we're all sort of um, connected to. I, I've... I read this book over the summer called Reimagining um, Organizations by Frederick Lello. Um, And basically, he looks at the evolution of human consciousness um, and sort of ties organizational structures to different stages of conscious development. Sounds very heady, but it's it's actually (laughs) super... He has an illustrated version. That's the one I read. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Find the secrets out. No, but even that one is quite dense. But um, it's it's quite... It's really interesting. And um, so he talks about, like, going from, like, this tribal state that's very top-down authoritative Mm. and then, like, this, you know, the the introduction of hierarchy and then, you know, ambition and and meritocracy... (laughs) And then the stage of like, you know, kumbaya culture, you know, trumps everything, like, which is definitely like the current climate in certain ways of like what it means to create a culture. And then he sort of talks about this, um, this stage called teal, which is the latest stage in a sense. And, hmm. and what teal is, it has, again, it's an organizational structure, but it has three facets. One is a community in which self-management is is key. So people are sort of running their own work. So it's not mm. about hierarchy, but it's about personal empowerment. Wow. 
The, um, the second one is about wholeness, sort of taking off our masks and being fully expressed, mm. actualized. And the third one is this idea that we're all serving an evolutionary purpose of the, of the organization or of, of the company or of the family or of the school or whatever it is, that there's this, that the community itself has its own identity in a sense, that has mm. a vision, has a purpose, and that we all are serving that purpose together. When I read that, I was just like tripping out on it so much because I felt yeah. like it was just it was so cool. And it, I just looked around me and I saw so many like, wait, it was ways to understand people around me, organizations around me, like, oh, they're more top down. They're more this, they're more that. This is trying to move towards teal. Like I realized Lamplater is really so much is about this mm. teal structure of well, what happens when we give children a certain sense of autonomy and, and we support wholeness and and there's a common purpose. And I think that's also in creativity, especially in creating a community of artists. When when those constructs are there, where it's not about serving self and it's not competitive and it's not, hmm. but it's really about this higher purpose, right? Right. Then we can do cool stuff. Then then our creativity, our voice actually really, wow. right? Like, yeah. so so interesting because i'm thinking about that both as like an employee and also as like the heavy person running every year like that like the what i always tell people about what i love about working at claw is like they hired they didn't just hire me to do this job of like director of digital media whatever it's also like they literally hired me to be me like they told me that like they're like you like and that was part of That's like the awesome. deal also yeah like like now i'm doing on work time i'm recording this hevria cast right, you know that right. in, in itself is an example i'm using their equipment for it you know yeah, wholeness right there I right would, yeah wholeness and also but also like the idea yeah being yourself mm -hmm. Um, living and also feeling like this is serving their purpose as well. Yeah. You know, when I write a, a personal blog post to them, they see that as part of their organization, you know. And I think that's like so beautiful. And then, yeah, I mean, it's very interesting with Hevria because it's so decentralized. Yeah. So we almost have to work like Teal. Like we have to be the most ourselves as possible or else it wouldn't work. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I don't know so why this is coming up for me, my memory, but. Um... Years ago, I was well, I was working as a filmmaker before um, I started Lampleaders, and I went to L.A. for some sort of video shoot, and there was this man, his name is Tan Khom Levy, mm -hmm. and he was this, like, old chassid, like, I think he was somehow related to, like, the Friedrich Rebbe or something, and he, um, and he also studied with Freud, and then, oh, wow. and he was, like, this amazing artist. Mm-hmm. And someone told me about him, and I literally showed up at the foot of his apartment <laughs> with my video camera, and I was like, "Can I video you?" Wow. Um, and he invited. I mean, he was like super old. I think he was in his eighties at that point, sitting in his recliner. I took the most amazing shot, like shooting the interview from his feet. <laughs> so he like this almost this like really interesting like point of view of like, and he's like smoking a pipe, and <laughs> he has behind him all these like handwritten drawings of like these different renditions of the flags of each shave it by the Mishkan. Oh wow. And then like nudes. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And he's telling me stories of like he he did a portrait of the of of the Sikh Rebbe and like and why is this coming up from my memory? I don't know. I guess maybe it was sort of encountering at like a critical point in my life, like an artist par excellence. Mm. But on some level, a very frustrated artist, because what we were talking about, and this is going back, I don't know, at this point, like at least 15, more than 15 years, was like, and he's like in his 80s, right? Like his vision going back to his early youth was an integrated Jewish creativity. Mm. And that wasn't available for him. Like he wow. had all these like stories and anecdotes of Lubavitcher, I'd be like sort of supporting the artists and creativity. Right. But essentially, even though he was so colorful, you saw that like fragmentation. He had the nudes, <laughs> right. and he had like the 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 flags of the shvatim. That I almost felt like that integration wasn't available to him. Right. Wow. That's right. Really and so I'm, I'm just thinking about this now. Like I'm just like seeing him, 
and like little naive me trying <laughs> um, trying to capture a story. But I think that 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 question was what was very compelling to me then and still is now. Like that sort of interplay between our identity as Jews and our and our role as artists and mm. and now it seems so much more available. Mm-hmm. Like it, I don't know. That's not. It's not such a burning question anymore. At least not to me. It seems like how do how do we act as Jewish artists or how <laughs> like it seems like so much more available. I think now the question is like, how do we as Jewish artists act like visionaries to transform mm. the world and really like really be the pioneers for sort of pushing this world towards redemption or um but speaking but, of having the world on your back <laughs> <laughs> but yeah you know it's like interesting to sort of be part of to, to, to sort of see that how we've shifted in certain ways yeah wow um i remember for some reason now i'm having a story come to mind but <laughs> i remember going to baruch nachshon's uh house it's oh a, wow very one listening is a paint a Hasidic painter and lives in near Hebron and um it's got a crazy story <laughs> but I just remember me, me and Rivka uh, my wife were at that time were uh at that time she's still my wife I'm saying at that time <laughs> we at, we were obsessed with this question of what is Jewish creativity actually mm. I still am obviously because this whole podcast every time I always ask someone like what do you think Jewish creativity is and I love that you're just like now we know what it is we're now we're living it you know <laughs> and I love that but I think it was really funny because I remember I just remember, first of all, I remember going into his house and I almost had the opposite experience of being like, whoa, Mm. like so hit emotionally Mm. by the paintings. And I think it was just, I felt like I was in the presence of someone who was living that like Mm. integration of the two. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, whether, I don't know, but like that's how I felt. Like I felt, I remember like looking at one painting and just being like, my gosh, this is it. This is Jewish creativity, you know, and like seeing that, like, I think it was, it was like, I could just like, you know, I was learning about Hasidus and Kabbalah at that time. So it was just seeing that in a painting was like mind blowing to me. Um, and I remember being just like dumbfounded. I remember Rivka was like, really? You're so, <laughs> so obviously it was subjective, but I think I remember. So anyways, we were obsessed with this question. And, um, so we go to him, uh, so we were at the Shabbos meal and he was just being very funny. He was like, every uh, two minutes, he would like, or every like five minutes, he would take off his hat and put on a different hat. He would always really? have like, oh, cool. yeah, on Shabbos, <laughs> he just had all these like collection of ridiculous hats. It was really funny. Basically every hat, but a black hat. Um, <laughs> and he, so we finally are like, so what, what's your definition of Jewish creativity? <laughs> he looks at us and he's just like, grumpily goes i don't know (laughs) (laughs) and and just moves on and we're like what like especially for me because i was like you're living it like what oh my god and i think like obviously it almost answers itself like that he was living it so he didn't need to give me some deep intellectual answer totally totally um but anyway such a lesson (laughs) right such a lesson i mean and this guy produces so much like if you go to his house it's just paintings everywhere um and yeah, yeah, totally. But I think it's also like, it's to me, you know, there's like, I think there's a lesson in both of, also there's a negative lesson in in the sense of what it, what, it, what it's like when it's not like that, mm. where I think the word that always, or the phrase always comes to my mind is cognitive dissonance, mm. where you, like what you were describing, this guy, he had this vision, this artist, he had this vision and he wasn't living it. And that's like, I think it's incredibly painful for people. We don't, we underestimate how painful that is for people. Um, and I think that's why, like, a piece of art can do so much for people because all of a sudden the cognitive dissonance for a second is gone, you know? Yeah. Because they're reading it. Like, they're doing an action by reading, right? It's not mm. It's not passive reading or experiencing or whatever it is. And and so for one moment, they're n- like, if this is a thing that's really painful for them, they're not experiencing it. Um, that's an interesting way to frame it. Yeah, I've been obsessed recently with this idea of cognitive dissonance. Because I think, you know, it's like that movie One of Us just came out. And right. I feel like those, the, I was going to say characters, the people in it, they're so clearly living, they're going through a phase where they're resolving some internal cognitive dissonance where like their world doesn't match up to their self-vision and and these sorts of things. Um, and some, like, there's a pain in that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course, of course. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's why you're saying, like, we're bringing the world to redemption. It's like, it's n- it's not said, I don't think we're saying it lightly. It's like, no, we to, re- to be able to live a true life without cognitive dis- that's that's like Mashiach, you know, like to live yeah. the truest life we can. It's interesting, though, because there are certain kinds of rubs that, like you're saying, cognitive dissonance, like rubs that are like points to inauthenticity or a lack of integration or whatever. But then there's certain kind of rubs that are healthy in mm. a sense. By rubs, you mean like uh, friction? Uh, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. Like, or paradox and these sorts of things. Yeah. Like, you know, right. we, we just started a, a high school prototype at Lamplaters. So we're starting to, to play around with adolescents <laughs> and just, you know, what, what would it look like to collaborate with um, teenage boys around what their educational experience could be? Mm. And there was somebody in the, there was somebody in the office, one of the, one of the boys who was having this conversation with one of, one of the teachers around like how he feels about people asking him to wear like yarmulke and tzitzis or like, <clears throat> or go to Minion or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And sort of like, like his, his experience in being asked to do something that he doesn't necessarily want to do or feel like doing. Mm-hmm. And they had this whole conversation, which was, really beautiful to watch because they both were so comfortable. The teacher and student were so comfortable with each other around like those places in life where, where we, where we could benefit from sort of pushing past our comfort level. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether it's within the frame of like, Jew, you know, how we express our Judaism or anywhere else in life, like sometimes, many times struggle Mm-hmm. or a sense of having to overcome something actually does propel us to to a higher place. So yeah. I, I I feel like certain kinds of cognitive dissonance are actually cool. It's just it depends right. like what you do with it, right? So like right. like yeah. even if you like, like let's say even as like as writers and we write stuff like I'm okay with writing something that may that may create a certain level of cognitive dissonance in somebody else. <laughs> if 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 that will actually lead to productive conversation or a shift of perspective, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like that's, that's kind of cool. Like, yeah. Like make me feel uncomfortable. I love that. You know what I mean? Like why? Like. That's so interesting. Like. Cause I think that's, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm just saying even in the context of that film, one of, even in the context of that film, one of us, I am I'm, I'm not suggesting that, not feeling aligned with a person's life's choices is a healthy thing, but having to grapple with those questions on an individual level and on a communal level, like what does it mean to belong and how, how flexible are we with parameters of, of community and, Mm -hmm. and except, you know, all those, all those kinds of deeper existential questions that come up. I mean, those kinds of frictions are, I think, positive. They're healthy. If they, if they actually lead us to do something. Right. Maybe know. that's such an interesting thing. Cause I think it's almost, first of all, I think we all uh, go through cognitive. I mean, we, it's like a state of being you know, right. in a sense. Like it's almost impossible. I don't think there's, you know, maybe like a tzaddik is I don't, even a tzaddik, like maybe not, you know? Right. Um, but like this idea of, that the world is not matching or that my thinking doesn't match up with my actions. It's like the technical definition, but I think also you could say like the world doesn't match up with, but I think, um, yeah, I think maybe a better way of phrasing it is like, are we repressing that cognitive dissonance or are we like embracing it and grappling with it? You yeah. Know? Cause that, that I think is what you're kind of touching yeah. on. Cause it's not, it's not that we're necessarily going to resolve it. Right. But it, totally. when we address it, that's, that in, a, in and of itself is like. I mean, I of, grapple with cognitive dissonance all the time. Yeah. <laughs> like all the time. Right. I mean, just like, I yeah. never thought I would be doing what I'm doing now. Right. I never thought I'd have a position in the community, whatever that means. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. I mean, I have all sorts of thoughts about like what the choices I have to make around that, mm-hmm. around that reality of mine um yeah yeah i mean i think also that the whole idea is like we all have 
and I think this is related to me, at least in my mind, this is related to Mashiach and, and to Revelation, is this idea that all of these things going on inside of us, underneath the surface, and and boiling and bubbling and, and whatever, and it's always shifting and changing based on our circumstances, based on our personal growth, and et cetera. Um, so we're always, there's always this stuff going on. So um, I think, you know, I think creativity, but you know, creativity on a very broad level is about allowing that stuff to become conscious, to become like something that I, I'm aware of and I'm working on. Like it reminds me really of, you know, it's funny because people, <laughs> they say things like, I saw some comment recently at a little drama on Hevria book um, where someone said something like, like art isn't therapy, you know? Um, and in my mind, I'm always like, well, it's, you're right, it's not, but it also is in a way. And, and definitely therapeutic. Therapeutic. That's yeah. a very good. So definitely a therapeutic. You must, you should be a writer. Oh. You just like keep saying things <laughs> Look away. At <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like this idea that, yeah, it is therapeutic and, and it's, it's, I don't know. It's just so healing. Like every time I write, I'm healed, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I, um, I, I did, I wrote something, I wrote a Facebook post, um, a couple of weeks ago because I was really in a slump with my writing. I was in a, I was in a creative slump in general. I mm-hmm. experienced this incredible high over the summer. I was part of Seth Godin's Alt MBA, and I was like tearing through work and being super productive and writing tons and thinking and ideas and reading. And I was just like really at my peak. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I sort of just like, you know, work life, everything happens, and then. I found myself really feeling like I was just stagnating and just really in a slump. And um, I remember I brought it up in the Chavria bloggers group and then sort of just like, I need to get, I need to get back to writing. And, you know, I've, I've sort of flirted with this reality before, but just like really articulating it of just, it's a certain need, you know, like it, you're talking about art being healing and I, it's like, to be creative in, in whichever ways we are. But I think right. that like as a, as a writer, there's a, it's a certain kind of just like, I need to get it out. I just, I need to get it out. And I don't know how to explain that. Like there's certain people in my life, it's just like, I, I need to write this. Like I need to say this. And I don't know. I hope it's coming from a good place. I do. Like I, I, I think there's also sometimes I wonder like, well, what would happen if you didn't say Yochavit? Like, you know, you know, I had this professor in, in college at Stern, Rabbi, Rabbi Metzger, and he would say in Yiddish, like, you don't have to say all the truth. <laughs> and I think about that sometimes, like, yeah, like, mm-hmm. what would it be like to sometimes stay quiet? But, but it would be very painful, I think, for me. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, right, I'm working on a piece right now, because um, I actually am expecting, and I'm working on a, a piece about my feelings about being pregnant right now. And, um, and it's something that I feel like I need to share. I just need to, I need to share it. And I want to share it in a way that I feel will bring me closer to other people and will also give people an opportunity to feel seen or heard. Yeah. And I know that not everybody around me gets that. Like, why do you have to share that? Like, isn't that <laughs> private or. Right. Um, but it's just like. Maybe it's a compulsion. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I think, you know, we were just talking earlier about how, you know, it's kind of circling back to this idea that when you do that, there are going to be people that are going to be really appreciative of it. So, like, on the one hand, it can seem, it's, I think it's that tension, again, yeah. embracing that tension of selfishness and unselflessness where you're creating it for you, but you're also doing it with a consciousness that it's for others, you know. Um, I doubt that you're writing it like purely from a selfish place, you know? Um, but there's like, there's something very, um, there's, there's deep value in catharsis in a sense. Like there's, there's some, right. That therapeutic. Uh, yeah. Thing, there's yeah. something there. And, um, yeah, it's interesting. I think that idea, like one of the things I always talk about with writers is like, this idea that, like, first of all, there's inherent worth to just writing. Right. Or to just creating or whatever. Um, but but there is also inherent worth to sharing. Like, that we tend to... 
you know, it's interesting, maybe in like the secular world, like they're the other side of it where like maybe they've gone too far or whatever. But like, I think in the religious world, there's, always, there's kind of a constant hesitation. Like, is this okay to share? Is this okay to share? Is this okay to share? Um, and so, but I think that even applies to a lot of secular people as well. Like just this fear of whether it's okay. And I think so when we allow ourselves to break out of that, then um, we realize how how powerful it is just to just to put it out there, you know. It's so like, one of my first pieces for Javier, I think it was my first piece, like after the intro piece, was um was the the name I hide from the world was all about my yeah. attention of like Yochavet and Elham, <laughs> and you know having this like Persian name and that identity growing up feeling like I so badly wanted to belong into my Hasidic community, but like my name outed me, you know, <laughs> and then transitioning to the Yochavet identity. And I remember after I, after I published it, um, the school at the time was on Eastern Parkway and I had to like get out of the building. My adrenaline was pumping so much. Wow. Like I, I couldn't even like, I couldn't contain myself. And I was like walking so fast down the street and I called my friend and I was like, I can't believe I just like shared this because that, that secret, that tension was inside for so long. Like I couldn't even say that name out loud, wow. like Elham, like in certain ways for so long. Cause it was just like, God, it was so heavy for me, you know? Um, and then I wrote it and I felt so scared I was really, really scared. I was very scared. And I also felt so brave. And the feedback was so positive. And I think like getting a taste of that, of once I wrote it, like now I feel so much more comfortable that I even have this paradox of identity and duality that I'm almost constantly dealing with. But I really mm. shed the shame around it. I'm like, yeah, like, yeah. So whatever. I mean, like, Alham Yochavit. Like, okay. Wow. It's just, and I, I don't know that I would have gotten to that place of um, acceptance around that mm -hmm. tension had I not gone through that process of, like, deep sharing and deep vulnerability, you know, that, that vulnerability hangover and, and then the feeling of, like, connection with other people around that. Because we all have our... Mm -hmm. I'm going to assume we all have our duality, inner duality and conflicting identities, whether they're spelled out in different names or not. And so once I got a taste of that, it was like I was hooked. Hmm. Just like that, that celebration wow. um, and that shedding. So, so yeah, <laughs> I, I forgot why I even like, no, just the, I think we're talking about the idea of like the, the power of sharing. You know? Yeah, exactly. Right. So there's great power in sharing. Yeah, because I think with <laughs> that's well, with <laughs> there we go. Well done. Um, well, I think what's cool about that is what you're saying is part of that process was like you needed people to know about it for you to be able to internally resolve it in a sense, like that there was this thing that you were holding in that people didn't know about. Yeah, or just, just... Like you said, you couldn't even say the name. Yeah, just finding, yeah, feeling safe to be exposed in that way and um, yeah. feeling held in that way, yeah. Wow. That was that was big for me. That was a really... Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things I always, I notice a lot um, among other writers, like beginning writers, especially beginning writers that want to write vulnerable stuff, like there's always this... Not always, but a lot of times there's a fear that, like, oh my gosh, what will people think when they know this thing about me? Right. You know, um, I think that's very often a fear. And one thing I realized with, I, I used to, like, not want to challenge people when they said that because, like, I don't, I, w I didn't want to be responsible for them, right. like, sharing something. Um, but then what I realized, is, first of all, I realized my own experience was that when I, whenever I had that feeling, every, um, basically every time I did that, um, there would be at least one person that would be like, you know, um, 
so grateful that I that I shared that about myself, you know, and and that understood at the very least. Even if they weren't grateful, they they would be like, I would be amazed, like for example, and 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 that made me braver and braver and braver, so that like I could then write about. For example, I remember like I never spoke about my near death experience until mm. the piece that I wrote about about it, and then after that, it was like this thing that first of all a lot of people knew about me but then also that i just felt comfortable talking about as right, if right right you know and then by, being bipolar and yeah all this stuff and, yeah and found that fascinating like you know well um, it's it's interesting because i've found myself in many scenarios where people have been like oh i know about your brother and i know about that <laughs> and i remember that piece when blah blah and i'm like oh <laughs> Awkward, <laughs> um, awkward, but also like, oh, you think you think you know me. Um, you do definitely know things that I've shared and that are real and vulnerable. Right. But there's so many there's so many layers, right? And wow. and I and I think that that's sort of a funny place, especially being somebody who's shared shared a lot um, through my writing of an assumption of being you know, just there's a lot of layers there. And what I think is interesting that once we share something, once I've shared something and it's out there, it feels well, not depersonalized because like, it's not like it's not still personal, mm-hmm. but it becomes less personal in a sense. And I don't, I don't mean that it, that it's not as authentic. It's just, I don't know. It's like this interesting phenomena that happens where once I, f- I feel, I, and, I, and I've talked about this with other writers and I think it's on some level a shared experience. Like once you sort of put something out there and you give it voice, mm-hmm. it feels less like, if, I don't know, it feels less like connected, like on an inside, like complicated sort of <laughs> level, you know? I wrote this one piece uh, I forgot what it was, what, what, but I, I wrote, it was, I, I, at the moment I was in a really feeling really dark and I think it was kind of like talking about darker stuff. And my mom messaged me. She's like, <laughs> I'm sure she said Elham. She's like, Elham, you have to be careful. Like, you know, you don't want people to think like you don't have a good marriage. You don't want people to think that. And, da, da, da. and she was so like scared for me and scared for my reputation and scared. And I, and I, it was like a day or two after I posted and I read it and I was like, oh yeah, like I guess it could look like pretty dark and whatever, but <laughs> there, yeah. I'm fine. It's good. Like, you know. I think I remember that even. Yeah. I, remember, I think you brought it up. Yeah. Yeah. It was, That's... it's interesting because so this summer when I was part of the Alt-MBA, a lot of the stuff that I did was a lot of the writing and the prompts, which really he pushes you to really go inside, were sort of exploring my role at land platers and my role like in fundraising and and just like feelings around just feelings around my work that were really intense and somebody was part of the cohort messaged me and said like are you sure it's a good idea to be sharing this stuff publicly Mm -hmm. because you know like one of his one of the program's things is like your stuff is public like Mm -hmm. if you if you if you don't feel comfortable sharing this or if you if you don't feel comfortable with the idea that your personal vulnerable stuff is shared, then like you don't belong here kind of a thing. Wow. <laughs> I can do that. So, <laughs> yeah, you had some practice. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he was like, are you sure you should be sharing this stuff? You know, because you're like, you have this position of leadership and what if people lose faith in you and all that? And my response to him was, no, I, I think that's actually why I need to be sharing it. Because, you know, this perception of, of, leadership or or highly visible people having like being two-dimensional mm-hmm. is so archaic right and like we're we want to see vulner i believe i would hope we we want to see vulnerability in people who who are doing something in a sense or like positions of leadership or influence or whatever um i remember uh rivka the other day was she was saying, like, we were talking about, like, the kind of people that we have at the Creative Fabrengans. Mm-hmm. And she was saying, like, um, she's like, I love that everyone is so flawed, you know. Mm-hmm. But obviously what she meant was, was like, 
that she, like and and she didn't just say that she loves it. She says like she feels like she can trust those people like mm. because they're just being real. They're being real with who they are. Like and when someone you know, it's almost it's, it's something that I've learned, especially as a Balchuva, to be extremely suspicious of um, is people that seem to have it all figured out. Like, right. Right. Um, because often, either purpose, usually not purposefully, I would say, like, or purposefully, like, there's an ag- an agenda at the very least, you know, going on. If not, something very unhealthy, you know, um, and. I think like, yeah, I think people want that because they recognize that that's what it means to be human. And yeah. you want to be led, you know, there is this, comp- there is this desire to be led by like an in- a person above humanity, which is like why we have like a Rebbe and stuff like that. But I think ultimately when it comes to, you know, the people around us that we like give are are giving over a certain, there's a lot of trust that you're giving over to someone as a leader. And I think we want to see them as human, you know? Um, I think that's what's very interesting about what's happening in Hollywood right now. Yeah. Like these were people that were literally idols. <laughs> like yeah. literally that's the word that was used for them. And now we're seeing them smashed totally to pieces. Totally smashed. Like, I know Kevin I mean, Spacey yesterday. Yeah. Did you read that? I know it's like. Like, and who would have, I never w- in my life would have thought like Kevin Spacey, that would happen. And, and, you know, we're seeing like, like Bill Cosby, like this guy who was like Seriously. wholesome and. Right. But I think it's like we're going through the birth pangs of like revelation, you know, where people and where we're seeing like like it's a fault. We everyone's known for ages that Hollywood is false, you know, and that it's, you know, got all these huge problems and it was always talked about. And and now suddenly we're like, oh, wait, like, this is not like for many reasons, like technological, the Internet and, and then just cultural changes. We're like, oh, we can talk about this. Yeah. You know. It's a mirage. Yeah, it's a mirage. And, and and so now hopefully what will happen is that, you know, the hope we hope that the result will be that to a certain extent the people will live up to the amount of trust that we put into them as cultural leaders, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Because if you think about it, you look you look at the values of Hollywood, for example, like it's <laughs> I wouldn't say it's so holy, you know, at the very least. And totally. And so now we're starting to see, oh, maybe like there's a a reason for wanting that out of people, you know, like because it's affected our whole world having people like that in charge of the way we look at everything, basically. And giving them so much power. Yeah. Unbelievable power. Yeah. It, it It is sort of interesting how like we're in, we're living in this time where like the truth is emerging. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, yeah, and and we not only is it emerging, we have to deal with it. Like yeah, to, it's just it's really it's a really powerful place to be. And then what's our responsibility around it, and how do we right? And how do we encounter pain? You know, yeah. I think I think it's um. I think we have really great responsibility in being able to look at pain and acknowledge it and give it a voice and then also sort of shed light on it and find a way towards healing and empowerment and truth. And, you know, like we can get stuck in any part of that process. Like Mm -hmm. we can get stuck in the pain or we can get stuck in like sugarcoating stuff. But like, really it's like keeping that flow, Mm -hmm. like going, you know, it's like keeping that, that flow just like moving of like, Darkness to light, darkness to light, darkness to light, <laughs> darkness to light. And if we can't, you know, it's like that that flame that's flickering. If we can't dance with that, mm-hmm. then it's just like, all right, so you see pain. Okay. Like, you know, okay, so the community's broken. The education system sucks. You know, mm-hmm. kids are on drugs. Uh, there's sexual abuse. I mean, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Okay, now what? Okay, so it's there. Now what? Right. Now what is like, okay, now let's like figure out how to like bring more light into the world or bring, you know, bring more love or what, you know, like make this transformative. You know, okay, we've made it visible. Now how do we like transform that? Well, 
We're literally at an hour, so I feel like this is like a good spot. <laughs> and you got to come again because we clearly haven't resolved everything. So oh, we gotta... well, this was fun. Thanks for letting me talk for so long. <laughs> <laughs> it's my pleasure. My pleasure. Seriously, so good to have you. Um, yeah, it's really nice to be here too. Is there anything like we should plug of yours? You nah. Can... <laughs> I love that. Yeah, um, you know. Go to com slash yocheved. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Fine. I mean, there's always stuff going on. It actually happens to be a really busy month for me, but just happy to be a part of this big, big universe. It's a great thing to plug. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Yocheved. Thank you a lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening to HivriaCast. I'm Alad Neharai. If you'd like to hear more and read more of our work, you can follow us by going to hevria.com or facebook.com slash hevriamag. We've been recording at the Kalal Studios in New York City, and the music that you're hearing is Voice Lessons by Darshan. Thank you so much, and I look forward to seeing and hearing from you again.